have a little croak in my voice. That'll go. <coughs> Excuse me. Thanks, Pastor, for the invitation. I appreciate that. Sariah, Rhea, you uh, confessed you want to get into gospel music. Years ago, when we first met the Larkins, I told Pastor Larkin, I said, one of my secret sins, I'm not going to tell you all my secret sins, but one of my secret sins is I love country gospel. And he just stared at me with that blank stare like, I can't believe what I'm hearing, but uh, we do like country gospel around our house. We have a PowerPoint, and I'm going to stick as close as I can to that PowerPoint, but I do want to give you a couple extra verses this morning, so if they're not on there, you can pencil reference into your notes if you'd like. Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. It's interesting, when the Lord came to this earth, he, um, he didn't receive a big welcome committee. There were two people who appeared to be waiting for his coming. And they were in the temple. One was an old man named Simeon. He took the Lord in his arms and he blessed him. And the other was an old lady. And she took him in her arms and blessed him. Where were the scribes? Where were the Pharisees? Where were the Sadducees? They weren't there. They didn't know what was going on. So we come to chapter 16, verses 1 through 3. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came up testing Jesus, and they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. But he replied to them, When it is evening, you say it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning there will be a storm today, for the sky is red and threatening. Do you know how to discern the appearance of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times? He was getting on them for not understanding what was taking place right in front of them, and they just didn't get it. I, uh, we have four children, and... Not one of their churches has ever preached anything on prophecy. My daughter, called, well, since they left home, my daughter uh, called two weeks ago and said, Dad, she said, our pastor said in the pulpit today, there's no such thing as an antichrist. There's no such thing as a tribulation period or a rapture or a millennium. He said, get that out of your heads. And so she raced home and called me and said, what do you think? And I said, he's wrong. She's wrong. Uh, we're struggling with that today. It's interesting. Uh, Friday, last summer I had the opportunity to take a course online from Dallas. Online, no less, and I'm not a techie. It was on the book of Revelation. I thought, I've got to take this. And uh, so they contacted me again to see if I'd be interested in anything else this summer. But... Um, the course was really interesting and really good, but in the email it said one-third of their potential students, the students they have today, one-third's interested in the pastorate. The other two-thirds want youth ministry or worship ministry, which are very important, but it's down to one-third studying to be pastors. It's a tough job to be pastors today. Churches chew them up and spit them out, you know. And uh, it just happens. 
Very few people are called to be the pastor, and when he calls one, then everybody else thinks, well, I can do better than that. Well, if you could, God would call you, perhaps. But uh, we're living in a tough day and age. Uh, In our own church, I had the chance to preach last fall. And I told our church, we've been here since 1999. And it was 23 years at that time, if I can count correctly, 22 years. And I said, we have not heard one message in all those years on prophecy. And uh, I haven't been invited back to this, by the way. (laughs) And I spoke to another church north of town about three or four weeks ago. And I talked similarly to what we're going to talk about today. But right in the middle of the message, here we're on this side, an older couple got up, left, and just left, and I thought, no, oh, I've offended another couple. And uh, But I got a call Friday from this same uh, chairman of their board and said, would you come back again? And I told him what happened. He said, oh, I wondered about those people. I talked to them. He said they had a daughter that had some kind of, a granddaughter that had an athletic event. So they said they, they weren't offended at all. And I thought, praise God. I, I don't come to offend, but that seems to happen. But uh, another thing, the email from uh, uh, Dallas, what they said in the email was there's a great lack of interest in prophecy these days, and it's, uh, it's shaking them up. They can't understand it. So we come to Matthew chapter 16, and uh, there's a related verse, and I didn't put it in for you. You can, you can uh, jot a note. It's found in the Gospel of Luke chapter 18, verse 8. Jesus asked the question, when the Son of Man comes again, will he find faith on earth? And it's a rhetorical question. No, he won't. So possibly we're into those days, and there's just not much interest in prophecy. Um, Well, let's look at the next verse, Matthew 24, verses 32 through 37. And uh, it's a great chapter, 23, 24, 25 are interesting chapters. But in this chapter, he says, and I'll learn the parable of the fig tree. And Matthew 24 isn't an easy read, but let me tell you, there are no verses in the Bible that talk about the rapture. There are no ver- there's verses that talk about the rapture. There are no verses that give signs for the rapture. But after the rapture, there will be a few months period while the world gets reorganized without believers around. And then the Antichrist will sign that contract with Israel saying, we'll protect you for seven years. And that's a tribulation period. So there's plenty of signs that look forward to the tribulation period. But none tell us the signs of the rapture. The only way we can know when the rapture is close by looking at the signs for the tribulation. So we we know it's coming. David Jeremiah is one of my favorites, and he does a lot of a lot on prophecy. And he says the mountains of prophecy, <coughs> excuse me, the mountains of prophecy cast long shadows before them. So when we're in the shadows, when we're in that area where it's getting dark and getting darker and getting darker, we know that. Uh, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry to do that to you. We know that it is near. So here. Verse 32, he says, Now learn the, the parable of the fig tree. When its, when its branch... 
<laughs> I thought she was going to leave. And I thought, oh, Lord, no, <laughs> not the pastor's wife. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Learn the parable from the fig tree. When its branch is ready and become tender, it puts forth its leaves. You know that summer is near. So when you see all these things, recognize that he is near, right at the door. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. What things? It's the signs of the... Uh, he's talking about the tribulation period. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But at that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like in the days of Noah. So we don't know when he's coming. We can see signs around us that seem to point to the tribulation period. And we know that the rapture occurs ahead of that. But we don't know when he's coming. Signs of the times. We have five nations listed here. Russia is mentioned in end times extensively. Ezekiel 38 spends a lot of time with Russia. It appears that after the rapture, and I got this from Dallas Theological Seminary, and I don't know if there's a better one. After the rapture, with that void of time before the signing of the treaty, that Russia is going to look at Israel and say, America is out of the picture. Europe is not yet gelled and become one. So let's go down and take Israel. So they're going to get some of the Arab neighbors, and they're going to go down and, and circle that, and they're going to be ready to wipe them out. But Ezekiel 38 tells us that God will send an earthquake and a great storm is so going to confuse the armies that they'll start fighting each other. And so they'll be fighting uh, what was one time a unit against each other. And then God's going to send hailstones on Israel weighing 100 pounds apiece. That'll hurt. And then uh, he says, not only will I do it in Israel, but I'll also do it in the northern parts. He doesn't name Moscow, but Moscow's almost directly north of Jerusalem. And so God's going to show himself strong. Russia will fade away. But the Antichrist, Israel will be scared. America won't be in the picture. And so the Antichrist will sign that treaty with Israel, saying, I'll protect you, and they'll be glad to have the treaty. Russia, we've been watching them with the Ukraine. Russia wants to retake all that they had at the end of the Second World War, and then they'd like to retake a little more. They want that empire back. China, there's a verse in um, Revelation which says there will come an army from the east of 200 million men. And uh, people have scoffed at that for years saying, who's going to raise an army of 200 million? And there's again, the Bible's wrong. Today, Russia claims to have an army of 200 million. They also, their navy is larger than all the navies of the world except ours. They're in second place to us. But they're building ships daily. They're just they're wanting to control the seas. They want to control the fishing in the South China Seas and because fish is a very important part of their diet. And right now, Japan does a lot of fishing. But the Russian vessels are intimidating 
Japanese vessels daily. And then there's an island off China called Formosa, and uh, China wants that island back, about 220 million people, excuse me, on that island. And uh, they're talking within the last week, we'll go to war for that if we have to. And the United States has signed a little treaty, we'll defend you, protect you, but there's not much likelihood that we'll defend them and protect them. So China is there. By the way, um, they have a large air force and a large navy, but they haven't been tried in war. Right now, well, the things that we can handle them, but uh, the day's coming when we won't be able to. Middle East and North Africa. They tried to get together as one big army in 1967 and surround Israel and try to wipe them off the map. That didn't work out well for them. In six days, the little Israeli army whipped up on them and beat them all and took over more land. And that's called the Six-Day War. So right now, their, their main threat is terrorism, not an, uh, an organized army as we know it. And they're, they're very effective with their terrorism. Europe. Europe is a sleeping giant, but it's starting to come back to life. The Ukraine people, we have said we do not want to start World War III to defend you. But Europe has been stepping up to the, to the plate. We're sending some, some weapons, which I greatly appreciate. But uh, Europe is coming together and saying, you know, they've been watching the terrorists, and, and they've got terrorists scattered throughout their, their countries. But now they've got a, 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 an eye on, on, on Russia, and uh, they're, they're frightened. They know that they better get together and they better become one. Then America, we're not mentioned in end time events. We're just not mentioned. And so something will happen to our nation. For years, Bible expositors have said we will implode from within. If you take the church out, I don't know how many believers there are in the United States. Maybe 50 million. But that's about one-sixth, one-seventh of the total population. But you take the believers out. And this country is going to become null and void instantly. They won't have the truth. They won't have the leadership. They won't have the spunk, if you will, of what the Christians bring to the nation. And they'll go downhill very rapidly. The condition of the United States today. I want to go through that list, but I'm going to take you to a verse that I don't have listed. I'm sorry about that. But it's found... Back in Numbers, chapter 20. An interesting thing. You know the story. Israel was out in the desert and they were very thirsty. And instead of praying, they complained. We don't do that, I'm sure. We don't complain, but they complained. And uh, God said, Moses, strike the rock. And the rock will produce water. The New Testament tells us the rock that followed them is the Lord Jesus Christ. So... Moses hit that rock, out came water, they were nourished, taken care of, all was good. But a few weeks later, they were in the same predicament, and they were in a new place, no water, it was hot, it was dry, and they, they started complaining again instead of praying. They didn't learn very rapidly. And God said, Moses, speak to the rock. You know the story. He didn't speak to the rock. When George and I first discovered this, George was teaching Sunday school, and we weren't Christians long. They put us into teaching. We should have been in a class listening, but you know how it goes. You know how these pastors are. And uh, um, 
Georgia came home one day and she was angry. She says, God didn't let Moses go into the promised land. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, okay. But here's how it goes. Numbers chapter 20, verse 12. But the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you have not believed me to treat me as holy in the sight of the sons of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. A little later, Moses came back to God and said, Lord, I, I, I'm sorry I did that. I'd really like to take them in. Moses was nearing 120, and he had put up with a lot in life. But the one thing he really wanted to do was take Israel into the promised land. And God said, no. So Moses came again and said, Lord, and he stopped him. He said, don't speak to me anymore of this matter. You're not taking them in. And he took him up on the high mountains of Moab, allowed him to see the land from the distance. Someday Moses will be back in the land. But uh, it meant a lot to God. To me, that was no big deal. And then God started teaching me. It is a big deal. We need to treat God as holy. And I'm telling you that because I need to remind you that in our nation, we're not treating God as holy. That was true of individuals, Moses and his brother Aaron, but it's also true of nations. Now, I'm going to give you some more verses that um, are not in your outline. So, Ezekiel. Oh, you haven't been in Ezekiel in a while, so... It's back there, trust me. Ezekiel chapter 10. I want to show you something. As the United States, when we look at the condition of the United States, the United States has left God, not treated God as holy in stages. God also, in stages, comes to the point where he says no more. So, Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 4. Then the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. Over the Ark of the Covenant, two angels. God calls them the cherub, or cherubim. And they face each other, and their wings touch each other. Residing above the cherubim is the true and living God. But there came a point when God says, no more. So he went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple. That's Ezekiel 10.4. 10.18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the... Th- and he went to the threshold of the temple. The glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. He came back to where they were. Isaiah tells us God's... Uh, judgment is God's strange work. God does not like to judge. He doesn't like to judge his children. But he came back. And he took the cherubim. Verse 19. When the cherubim departed, they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in the sight of the wheels besides them. Now that's interesting. And they stood at the entrance to the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the Lord God of Israel hovered over them. They stood at the east gate. But from the east gate, now can you see the stages taking place here as God left? I want to go to hmm. I do that a lot. Chapter eleven, verse thirteen. God goes from the east gate. I didn't give you the correct address there. Chapter Ezekiel, chapter eleven, verse thirteen. God goes from the east gate to the Mount of Olives, and then he departs from there in stages. 
So let's look at some stages, the condition of the United States today. And to us, they may not be a big deal. When these things were happening in our nation, many of us said, well, I'm going to remain true to God. Many did. Many still have. But nevertheless, it hurt our nation sorely. 1925, almost 100 years ago, schools were ordered to teach evolution alongside creation. It was called the Scopes Monkey Trial down there in Dayton, Tennessee. George and I have been in that little courthouse where this took place. If God is not our creator, what results? If God is not our creator, anything goes, folks. We're not responsible to him. And if you're a little girl and want to be a little boy, you just tell your parents, I want to be a little boy. And God is out of the picture. It might be no big deal to many. It's a big deal to God. 1962, prayer was removed from our schools. With prayer comes hope. If hope is lost, where do we turn to for help? We took prayer out of our schools. 1966, the Bible was removed from our schools. The Bible is a basis of knowledge. The Bible is a basis of truth. What replaces truth? I'm going to tell you. It's the media. The media becomes true. Whatever the media says, that's got to be true. 1973, abortion was legalized. Now, I want you to notice these steps, okay? Abortion was legalized. What kind of message does that send? If we can kill babies in the womb... Why can't we kill babies in school? 1980, the Ten Commandments were removed from our schools. What becomes of our final authority? Who is our final authority? You know who it is today? It's the government. If the government makes a law and says it's legal, then it's legal. It's okay. Government says so. 2009, the Hate Crimes Act, under which gender identity and sexual orientation are protected from discrimination. They said God does not choose gender, uh, the gender identity or what, re- what results from that. We choose. Man chooses. And in 2015, same-sex marriage legalized. The family is the foundation of every society. Destroy the foundation. Redefine the family. And it destroys our nation. And it's in our papers daily. It's in our evening news on TV. The Bible's description of a downward uh, spiral. Romans chapter 1. You can see why this isn't a popular message for me to preach. Georgia's going to stop going with me. She doesn't want the hostility. Romans chapter 1 verse 21 For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. They became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. We knew God. We don't know God today. Romans chapter 1 verse 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God says, that's where you want to be. I'll I'll let you do your own thing. You're not going to like it. From there we go to verses 26 and 27. For this reason God gave them over to degrading passions, for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is uh, unnatural. And in the same way also men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire homosexuality. 
There's a, a sexual revolution that follows and then a homosexual revolution. And I have to qualify that and say, please don't think I'm a hater. Both George and I have homosexual relatives. Our relatives have been in our home, eating at our table. We don't hate them, but we sure are quick to let them know what the Bible says about such actions. So don't tell me I'm a hater just because I tell you what the Bible says in that, all right? Verse 32. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, not only do they do the same, but look at the last part of verse 32. But also give, <coughs> excuse me, hearty approval to those who practice them. There comes a time when a nation gives hearty approval. Now I'll let you be the judge of that. Is our nation giving hearty approval to the sexual movement and the homosexual movement? Then chapter 2, verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. God says, I will judge, even though judgment is my strange work. Judgment normally comes in three forms. First of all, war. Second of all, disease. Third of all, famine. And if that isn't enough, in some places, especially in the Old Testament, God says he includes wild animals. Uh, Michigan has mountain cats that are big. Michigan has bears. Michigan has wolves. So we can't avoid these things. They're, they're there. Billy Graham, just before he died, said, If God does not judge the United States soon, he's going to owe Sodom and Gomorrah an apology. And he died several years ago. Charles Stanley. And Charles Stanley is, you know, he, he doesn't get into prophecy much. And he's just wants you, he, he wants you to be healed emotionally. And he does a good job with that. But Charles Stanley says, we're headed in a disastrous direction in the life of our nation. David Jeremiah, my favorite, believes the rapture is very near. And then he's the one that gives that quote about the mountains of prophecy cast long shadows before them. We're living in a tough time, but I, I can't leave you there. And I want to present to you, there's three things on the bottom, you'll see here. Three things are faith, hope, and love. God wants us to practice his presence. God wants us to have a real and vital personal relationship with him. All right? Uh, and it's important to God. Our nation that we live in, we have health insurance and life insurance and social security. And quite honestly, folks, we're the richest people on the face of this earth. And it's a great danger for all of us, even pastors and their pay. It's a great danger for us to begin to rely on what we can accomplish, not what God wants to do for us. Faith is relying what God does for us rather than what we do for him. I, I have Christian friends who say separation is the key thing. You live a separated life and you'll draw close to God. Well, that's not true. Those who have been, we'll read it in a minute. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. And I'll show you this. Faith. Faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. So I guess what I'm trying to tell you is, whatever time we have left before the Lord comes, whatever time we have left before this nation goes further downhill, learn 
to rely on Jesus Christ. David has a great, great quote. It's in Psalm 131 or 133 back there. David says, as a weaned child leans against his mother. You've all seen a two-year-old come and grab mama's leg. He says, as a weaned child leans against his mother, he said, soul my soul rests against the Lord. And he was a tough guy. And he could publicly admit that and sing that, that I cling to God. Jeremiah had that illustration where God said, Jeremiah, I want you to go buy a new belt. And he probably thought, well, I don't know why God's telling me to buy a new belt, but I haven't spent the money on that, and I'll do it. So he went and bought a new belt. He wore it for just a brief period of time, and God said, now, Jeremiah, I want you to take it over to the Euphrates River and hide it in the dirt and the rocks. Now, that's a jaunt, folks. That's that's a long ways to walk, at least 300 miles, maybe 350. And so Jeremiah did that, and then he came back. And after a few months, God said, now, Jeremiah, go back and get the belt. <laughs> you know, he was obedient to God, but sometimes we scratch our head and say, really, Lord? And he went back and got the belt, and he brought it out, and it was worthless. It wasn't. And God said, that belt, which I designed for a robe to, for people to cling to me, they become uh, worthless. They don't cling to me anymore. And it was a great object lesson for Jeremiah and for us today. God wants us to cling to him. Psalms 111, 2 and 4. While you turn there, I'm going to give you one more verse that's in Romans, and I love it. And uh, I love the Old Testament. And I try to read equal amounts of time in both the Old and the New Testament. But now go to Psalms 111, but I'm going to read you from uh, what Paul said in Romans chapter 15, where he talks about hope. 15.4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Now, what was written before the New Testament was written? Probably the Old Testament, okay? So that through the perseverance and the encouragement of scriptures, I found tremendous encouragement in the Old Testament, especially the Psalms. I've got a lot of stories I'd like to tell you, but I promised my wife I'll be out of here by quarter two today. Years ago, we went to Youth Haven Ranch to add a dinner. We used to give a little money to Youth Haven Ranch. We sat at a table. Of, uh, we didn't know. We got in there late and sat at a table with a bunch of old aunts of mine from the Quincy area. And they're all believers, but, you know, they're old school. And uh, in the course of the conversation, I was just telling about a, a young lady in our church. And I didn't give names. And she was really struggling with depression, deep depression. And one of the old aunts said, well, tell her to read the Psalms. And I thought... She doesn't even know where the Psalms are. And, uh, but, uh, but I've found that there's a lot of comfort, a lot of encouragement in the Psalms. And I try to read one daily, and I get through the Psalms about two and a half times a year. I find tremendous encouragement there. But encouragement is that we might have hope. I just need to tell you that if you want hope, and God wants you to have hope, faith, hope, and love, but it comes from the Word of God, okay? Psalms 111. Let me show you something interesting. When I first read this a few years ago, I said, wow. Psalm 111, verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord. They are studied by all who delight in them. Can you see that? God says... You think about what I've done for you. 
You think what I've done for others, I'll do for you. Didn't somebody make a song about that? God wants you to remember the things that he's done for you. Some believers I talk to, and they have a long list of things that's happened in their life, and they're sour. God says, I don't want you sour. I want you sweet. Remember what I've done for you. And in verse 4, it says, he has made his wonders to be remembered. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Think it through, folks. How good has God been to you? What kind of a childhood did you have? What kind of an upbringing did you have? Uh, how many people encouraged you? Did you go to a good church? The music, the songs, the Bible teachers, the faithful Sunday school teachers, the want workers. God has been good. God says, study those things that I've done for you. Remember those things. Judges 2.10. Now we're relying here. Faith is relying on what God does for us rather than what we do for him. Judges 2.10 is another one of these verses. It's just an aha moment for me. I was saved late in life. And um, I've had to learn everything the hard way. All that generation were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. And I read that and read that and I stopped there. They didn't know the Lord. That's why they fell off the wagon. But goes on. Yet the work which he had done for Israel. God wants you to remember what he has done for you. Carry that list around with you. God has been good to you. Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14. Two men came into the temple. One of them was a Pharisee. The name Pharisee means separated. And he was separated. Elsewhere it tells us that he tithed his garden herbs. I've never tithed my carrots. I'm sorry. But uh, here's another story. When I first came to Michigan Center Bible Church, the pastor had been there for 30 some years. G. Wilmer Miller. They called him Pop. I love Pastor Miller. He had cancer. He was dying with cancer. But I'd call on his house regularly. And when I, the first time I called on him, he says, Mike, he says, do you have a hobby? And I said, well, in our old house, I worked a lot in my garden. He said, grow a garden. I buried a lot of deacons in my garden. And uh, I, I just uh, kind of enjoyed the man, and I learned a lot from him. But uh, two men came into the temple there in Luke, and there was a Pharisee who came right down to the altar. And the tax collector, the worst thing you could call a person back then, stood by the back door. And the Pharisee said, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like other people. And he told God all the good things, not all of them, but many of the good things he had done for people. And then he said, I thank you that I'm not like that rascal back there. And you know the story, the rascal back there beat himself on the chest. And he said, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went away justified, not this man who's down here trying to tell God how good he was. Rely on what God does for you. Remember them. Study those things. Hope. Rely on the promises of God. Now, I gave you 15.4 already. The encouragement of, of scriptures might give us hope. Uh, Psalms 119.92 and 16. If your law had not been my delight, then I would have perished in my affliction. When hard times come, if we don't have a place to go to, I have several verses in the scriptures, depending on the situation that I go to, and I read, and I find comfort, and even though I can quote them, 
I go back and read them again and again. Sustain me, verse 16, according to your word that I may live and don't let me be ashamed of my hope. God loves his word. And he wants us to love his word and live by it. Ephesians 6.17. This is the, the armor of God reference. In verse 17 it says, And take on the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Okay? The word word there near the end. It's not logos, where it is everything, every place else in the Bible. It's the all-encompassing Word of God. It's a word called Rema, R-H-E-M-A. And the Rema of God is those special verses that God has given you that you underline in your Bible, and you put them in your hearts and your minds, and you memorize them, and you live by them. God loves it. When I'm in a hard place, I don't have any fear of coming back to God and saying, Lord, here's what you promised Here's what you said. One of my favorites is Psalm 91, verse 14. God says, because he's loved me, therefore I will deliver him. Deliver from what? Any need you have. And God doesn't say because he's been such a good churchgoer or a good Sunday school boy or whatever. I can't measure up. But God says, because he's loved me. And God knows I love him. Okay. That, let's take it into the next one. Love. Discover God's love for us and respond to God's love with love. Love is a reciprocating thing, you see. God loves us and he wants us in turn to say we love him. When I was in seminary way back in the late 60s, Dr. Victor Matthews had a bunch of seminarians, preacher boys, in his class, and he said, how many of you have ever told God you loved him? And at that point in my life, I couldn't raise my hand because I thought God's going to slap me silly because I never have. I thought, I'm too bad of a sinner. I've got to get better before I can tell God I love him. And less than half of all those preacher boys could raise their hands. God wants you to tell him you love him. If you have a little two-year-old baby that's just learning how to talk and they give you those big wet kisses and they say, I love you, Daddy, that means more than anything in life. And you and I may be just a two-year-old baby and we may not be the most spiritual being on the block, but God loves it when we tell God, I love you. We know we fall short, but he cherishes that. Matthew chapter 22 is when the lawyer came to Jesus and said, um, what's the great commandment in the law? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself, all right? Then coming across to Luke 7:47, and uh, we're going to wrap it up here. But uh, that verse is an interesting verse. Those who have been forgiven little, love little. Those who have been forgiven much, love much. Now, you don't have to go out and commit all the sins that the world sins to be a bad sinner. All you have to do is your natural, coveting, greedy, critical, pious self. All you have to be is a regular old Christian, okay? And you need to be forgiven much. Those who have been forgiven much love much. That comes from the Word of God, not from Mike Bracey. Last one, 1 John 4, 19. We learn to love because he first loved us. 
There's more here, folks, but uh, for sake of time. But we watch God love us. We watch God take care for us. We watch God live with us and love us and encourage us. And in our response to God, we find that he loves us and he takes care of us. And it grows our love. Sweeter as the years go by. And it does get sweeter and sweeter. Many of you I know this morning can say, I love God with all my heart, soul, and mind. Praise God for that. He loves that. He cherishes that. But if times get hard and bumpy, it's things like faith, hope, and love that will keep us on a steady course. And not only us, but it will get us in a position where we can help others. And that's what life is all about. Job, in the midst of his troubles, you know, he had all these accusers, and it's easy to have accusers when things go south. And Job called out to God and he said, Lord, I wish I had a daysman. And a daysman is somebody that takes the hand of God and takes our hand and brings the two together. Your job and my job, when life gets bumpy, is to be a daysman. And we have to be strong enough to be a good daysman. So you're going to do these things. You're going to try to grow in your faith, hope, and love, not only for yourself, but for others around you that need you. Father, we love your word. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we commit ourselves to you. We would ask that you would bless and favor this church. Make your face shine upon this church. Be gracious to this church, Father. Teach them how to love. Teach them how to live by faith. Teach them how to live with hope. Give them passages from your word that just thrill their soul, those Rima verses, and let them claim them, underline them, memorize them, live by them, and share them with others. And Father, we give you the praise. Thanks for this, uh, this word in Jesus' name. Amen.